and welcome to Adventology, a real awakening and in-depth evaluation on the most difficult questions we have as humans about the truth of this universe, providing the remnant tools to be prepared for Christ's advent. This episode is titled Birthing Pains, and are we going to be talking about literal birthing pain? <laughs> yes and no. And truth be told, there are many, many layers to this topic, and I'll most likely have to separate into two parts, but we'll see. This is just the first episode, so we're just getting our feet wet and laying the foundation for later episodes. Let's start with a word of prayer and dive in. Heavenly Father, King of heaven and earth, I ask you that you bless every single listener, and I ask you that you give us your Holy Spirit in order to discern your scriptures. Thank you for every beautiful promise you've ever given us. All this I ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So, what are birthing pains? Well, the female reproduction system has a uterus, and the uterus is a muscular organ that contracts powerfully to squeeze when someone's in labor, and those contractions are the primary source of labor pain. Besides intense muscle tightening throughout the abdomen and sometimes the entire torso and pelvic area, women may feel pressure on their back, perineum, bladder, and bowels. The takeaway is that birth is indeed painful for most women. Actually, in the United States today, about 15 women die in childbirth per 100,000 live births. And a century ago, it was more than 600 women per every 100,000 births. And in the 1600s and 1700s, the death rate was twice that. Now, why are we talking about birthing pain and birth? Why is this spiritually relevant? Well, if we open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 24, we'll read probably one of the most discussed chapters in the New Testament of the Bible. In chapter 24, we read that Jesus had just left the temple, and as he was walking away with his disciples, he had asked them, Do you see all these things? He then continued, I truly tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Now, this part of the Bible has a dual meaning. When Jesus says this, he's definitely giving a prophecy referring to the Temple of Jerusalem and the city itself that would literally face destruction and come down nearly 40 years after Christ in 70 AD. But it is also a reference to the end days of this world, and we'll come back to that a little later as we go deeper into the layers. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming that I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars, rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Now, why is it that Jesus makes this metaphor? Why birth pains? 
Well, when we think about women in labor, the first thing we think about are contractions. And well, normally it all starts with the first stage of labor and birth. When women begin to feel regular contractions, which causes the cervix to dilate, this allows the baby to move into the birth canal. The first stage is the longest of the three stages, and it's actually divided into two phases of its own, early labor and active labor. During early labor, they'll feel mild, irregular contractions. Early labor is super unpredictable, and the average length varies from hours to days. During active labor, the contractions will become stronger, closer together, and regular. Their legs might cramp, they might feel nauseated, experience increasing pressure in their back. From hindsight, yes, it's definitely a very big burden for women, and super strenuous for most in natural birth. However, at the end of the tribulation, it's a joyous and celebratory occasion. And this is exactly why Jesus used this comparison of birthing to the end times of humanity. Things during the final events of Earth will slowly and little by little pick up. Truth be told, I've heard a million times, oh, humans have always faced tribulation throughout history and awful things have always happened. To not be alarmed, that's alarmism. And I completely agree. However, the Bible doesn't say that there has never been tribulation. It specifies that it will be a tribulation that the whole world throughout all of history has never seen before. And although many know that the world is expecting, they're oblivious and quite honestly numb to what's unfolding before their eyes many will not feel the need to properly prepare for the end. And the truth of the matter is that once the pains are unbearable, it'll be much too late to prepare. That is exactly why we must always be on guard. Jesus says later on in Matthew chapter 24, then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm till the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see, standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation spoken through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one go into the field and get their cloak. For there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. These were all signs that the Lord left for his people to know and be aware 
for when the day would come, when the time here on earth would begin its culmination. Let's continue on reading Matthew chapter 24. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, many people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other one left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken and the other one left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would have not let his house been broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we read, what Paul says, and he says, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. And again, we see the Apostle Paul making the same reference of birthing pains. Pregnant women, although with the help of modern technology, medical professionals can somewhat pinpoint the time when labor will commence. However, it's super unpredictable. No matter how much science and AI there is in the world, there will always be an unpredictability. The same applies to the coming of the Son of God. As much as biblical scholars, preachers, and many others would like to declare timelines in which seem to be accurate for the year, month, or date that the Savior is coming, it will always be a mystery. This is why it is of crucial importance to never rely on these predictions, to never rely on what man says, but to rely on what the Bible says. We must live our lives ready every day as if Jesus were to arrive tonight. And as uncertain as the days will be, God gives humanity specific details that will help us know when and how to prepare our spiritual lives for that amazing day. Paul gives us some very insightful advice. Continuing, it says, But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should not surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. 
This is found again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1-11. through 11. Now, it is well known that many Christians see these verses and claim that the universal rapture will occur. And as marvelous as that sounds, the Bible completely contradicts this thought. As cryptic as the Bible is at times, it is very straight to the point about what the remnant will face in the end days. And for those that don't know what the word remnant means, it's a word that means remaining, and it signifies the final church that will keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And when we say final church, it does not mean a particular religion or denomination. It means the group of people, regardless of where they're from, that inevitably will unite in the solid and steadfast truth of the one and only Redeemer. Matthew chapter 24 verse 9 clearly states that then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. It also states a little further, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. We can also see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 16 through 17, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, i.e. the remnant, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. In Revelations chapter 7 verses 9 through 14, we see John talk about the 144,000 saved, which is a non-literal symbol for the remnant. Non-literal as in the final group that won't pass through death is innumerable. 144,000 is a symbolism for the 12 tribes of Israel as those that will remain in the end days. The verses say, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And then one of the elders asked me, These in the white robes, who are they, and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. We see that Jesus will keep us through the tribulations and redeem us all together. No one at any point and time will be divinely whisked away. And all those who die in Christ will rise and go to heaven together with the remnant. The term thief in the night means that there will be those who are caught off guard, mainly because they choose to remain to be asleep, they didn't properly prepare, or they were deceived by the enemy. 
Thanks to an almighty and gracious God, no one will be able to say that they were not warned. Why is this? Well, several factors come into play because of prophecy. We just discussed that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And again, the Holy Spirit speaks through the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 10 verses 14 through 18 saying, How then? Can they call on the one that they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all those Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, The Lord who has believed our message... Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard throughout the word about Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Paul then goes forth to cite King David, where we find in Psalms chapter 19 verses 1 through 4, where the whole verse says, The heavens declare glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all of the earth and their words to the ends of the world. The verses speak for themselves, and yet we still see in Revelation chapter 14 a prophecy that the Lord in all his mercy has gifted those that dwell on earth. The message of the three angels has to be one of the most important prophecies for mankind as we open into the final chapter of the 6,000 years that is known as the plan of salvation through Christ. When it comes to the message of the three angels, we're never to expect seeing literal angels fly through the midst of heaven. We must know, however, that this actual message has been passed down the divine ranks so that humanity may know the imminence of this message. This message was passed from the Father, given to Jesus, Jesus gave it to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit gave it to the angel that appears to John, and John sends it to the seven churches mentioned in Revelation. So it is up to the churches to proclaim this message to the world. And what's so imperative about these messages? There's one word that can sum it up. Judgment. And I know you're probably like, oh, here we go. I already know I'm a sinner. I'm going to hell. I don't care. I don't need someone to tell me I'm evil. Here's the thing. The message of the three angels is quite the opposite. The message of the three angels is to show you that God is giving the last wake up call. He wants you to listen to his voice to know and believe in his undying love, to understand the sacrifice that was made for you and me. Christ will not come until every heart has heard this message. Look, it's up to you to accept or reject this call. 
It is up to you whether you want to prepare and dwell with a creator in the most fantastic and divine place where pain, hate, greed, sickness, and hunger have no place. Just know that the Lord has done this throughout every time, in every situation, before destruction comes upon somewhere. He always has warned. We can take, for example, the flood in Noah's time, before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, before the destruction of Nineveh in Jonah's time, before the destruction of Jerusalem. Countless accounts where God in all his mercy always gives the opportunity for the people to hear him before it's too late. And nothing changes with this final event that's to occur. Let's take a look at what these final calls are. The first angel's message is found in Revelations chapter 14, verses 6 through 7, and it says, Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who has made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Judgment is seen by most people as an event that occurs at the end of history rather than as a process that already began and will culminate after the millennium. The judgment in Revelation occurs in three stages. Before the second coming of Jesus, during the thousand years of the redeemed being in heaven, and after the thousand years when judgment of the wicked occurs. The heavenly judgment consists of three steps, investigation, adjudication, and enforcement of that sentence. The Catholic Church and Protestant churches alike are unable to understand a judgment that takes place in heaven before the second coming, because for them, judgment transpires at the moment of death, or at the second coming itself. Christ will bring the salvation, so that means if he's bringing the reward of salvation to the remnant and the saints who are resurrected at the second coming, it's evident to know that it's not very plausible to reward a sentence of salvation at the second coming unless it's already been declared beforehand in a judgment. Matthew chapter 16 verse 27 says, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward every man in accordance to what he has done. Revelation chapter 22 verse 12 also states, Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. So, if judgment is in heaven before the arrival of Christ, when does judgment start? Well, what if I were to tell you judgment has already started? Based off of the prophetic message in Daniel chapter 7, we can see that there is a sanctuary in heaven, the true tabernacle that the Lord set up and not humans. In it, 
Christ ministers on our behalf, making available to believers the benefit of his atoning sacrifice that was offered once and for all on the cross. When Christ ascended to heaven, he was inaugurated as our grand high priest and began his intercessory ministry, which was exemplified by the work of the high priest here on the earthly sanctuary. Such ceremonies were put in place during Mosaic times that ended the day the Son of God died for our sins. There's a prophecy in the book of Daniel chapter 8 verse 14 where it declares that after 23,000 days the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Based off of the study in Ezekiel chapter 4 verse 6, we know that days are the prophetic representation for literal years. This might get a little complicated, so bear with me. If you want to stop, rewind, I suggest you do it. And you can totally do these calculations on your own and refer yourself back to the Bible for visual representation. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, we see that those 23 literal years must be counted from a time when a king decrees for Jerusalem to be rebuilt. And although the Bible gives three accounts where such a decree is given, there's only once where we see with exact detail where we can calculate a year for a decree to be given. So if we look in the book of Ezra chapter 7, we have the necessary information to locate the exact time of this important prophecy. Regarding this decree, we are told that Ezra left Babylon on the day of the first month of the seventh year of the reign of King Artaxerxes, that he and his group arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month of the same year. For no other decree, there's such detail given, which helps us calculate exactly to 457 BC. What am I saying? So in 457 BC, there's an exact basic date that the Bible is telling us when the temple of Jerusalem is to be rebuilt. And with this date, according to the prophecy of Daniel, we can pinpoint other important years that align perfectly with other prophecies given to Daniel to verify Christ as the Messiah, such as his birth, his baptism, even the stoning of Stephen. With this in account, we can calculate 23,000 years from 457 BC and we arrive at 1844 AD. Based off of these calculations, we know that in 1844, at the end of the prophetic period of the 23,000 days, Christ entered the second and last phase of his atoning ministry, which was depicted by the work of the high priest in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. It is a work of investigative judgment, which is part of the ultimate disposition of all sin. This cleansing of the ancient Hebrew sanctuary on the Day of Atonement and the Old Testament was a symbolism for what Jesus would commence in 1844. In that typical service of the sanctuary, 
the sanctuary was cleansed with the blood of an animal and animal sacrifices. But the heavenly sanctuary, things are purified by the perfect sacrifice of the blood of Jesus. The investigative judgment reveals to heavenly intelligences who are among the dead are asleep in Christ and therefore in him are deemed worthy to have part in the first resurrection. It also makes manifest who among the living are abiding in Christ, keeping the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, and in him, therefore, are ready for the everlasting kingdom. This judgment vindicates the justice of God in saving those who believe in Jesus. It declares that those who have remained loyal to God shall receive the kingdom. The completion of this ministry will mark the close of human probation before the second advent. So, it's a little complicated, and for those that aren't very well-versed in the Bible, it may be a little difficult to understand. But the Bible gives us dates. The Lord has given us the prophetic date of when Jesus entered the last phase of judgment. So, now that we have established that the first angel's message was completed in 1844, when Christ made his transition in the heavenly sanctuary, and is now opening each of the seven seals of the Book of Life to start investigative judgment on every person that has died, claiming to be a follower of Christ, starting with the first man that ever lived and continuing to those who are alive and will be alive during the day of Christ's second coming. Now that we understand that judgment has commenced, what is it that we must do in order to make sure that we're in God's favor? Well, the first angel's message says, Give glory to him that made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. Well, of course, it's telling us to recognize God as our sole creator. He is the creator of this earth. Now, it's interesting there's only one commandment that declares God as creator and memorializes God as the author of the Ten Commandments. And quite honestly, it's the most detailed commandment that God left. But I'm actually going to go ahead and leave you guys on this bit of a cliffhanger. That way it propels you guys into the second part of our episode. Um, I hope you guys have enjoyed so far. Uh, take a little break, but tune into the next one. It's going to get really interesting. <laughs>